What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the hostile Q&A. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the hostile Q&A number 13. And we are going to cover some questions that you guys left on the hostile Instagram yesterday. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you to everybody for the comments and the subscribing and doing all the cool stuff on the on my channel because the RBP podcast has really taken off. And I don't think I say thank you enough. So I just want to take a minute and say thank you to everybody who watches and leaves comments and um, helps promote the channel. So please, if you guys uh, find the Q and A's or find the podcast valuable, please share, subscribe and do all that with your uh, friends. So we can keep the channel growing and uh, keep these things coming out. So anyway, uh, before we get started, I always say I'm not a guru. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm going to answer these questions based on my own career, my own bodybuilding career, what worked for me, what I saw work for clients that I've helped. Uh, so take that for what it's worth and uh, hopefully it helps you guys out. So we'll start with the first question and it's kind of an easier one. It's what does it take? What does it take to be part of team hostile? The hostile team is in my opinion, just a bunch of guys who work hard. Um, if you want to be a hostile ambassador, that's probably the first ingredient. Um, usually guys have an attitude of some sort. They have something that they feel very strongly about. That is, uh, also been a characteristic, whether by accident or on purpose seems to be the way I've picked out some of the guys, um, getting to the more, you know, common themes and common things. Social media plays a big part. Obviously your placings play a part, but not as big a part as they used to. Uh, the way you interact and the way you carry yourself is important, but not necessarily in a judgmental way, just more that you kind of respect the people that follow you and things like that. And obviously if they respect you as well, I'm, I'm not saying anybody should just take anything from anyone, but um, as long as you have a good rapport with your fans uh, and you work hard, you're working at developing your brand, you're working at developing your social media, uh, you're working at developing your physique, just, all those things have to be evident in, in what we see. And then obviously it has to be a caliber of athlete that is either has potential to be great one day or already is great, already is great now. Um, either on the athletic side or it could be some other hook that they have, right? Like, um, like Ben is a great coach and he very, he's very knowledgeable and he's very into the science of things. So Ben is valuable that way. He also is very strong and he, he's, beneficial to us as an athlete as well. So he has more than one thing going for him. But if you aren't going to be the Mr. Olympia athlete, then maybe you're going to be the really good scientist that knows everything about everything. I mean, everybody has a reason why somebody, everybody has their own reason why they're valuable. So when I'm looking at athletes, I kind of look around and I see what that person has to offer, what we need as a team. And, um, I'm always looking, I, I, I don't, you know, people send me messages and I'm, I'm, I'm not, we're not really looking for anybody right now. We just brought on a whole bunch of people, but my eyes are always open. I'm, I'm a very big fan of the sport. So I look around, I'm always seeing who's new and upcoming and um, we will reach out if we see you uh, and we think you're valuable to the team. Uh, but right now we're pretty full stocked. Like we, we have as many guys as we really need right now. Uh, thoughts on Vitargo versus cluster dextrin. I don't think there's a comparison. Uh, cluster dextrin has the fastest 
uh, absorption rate of all carbs that I know of. Uh, that's why we use it in our intra R3. And that's why our new carb powder that's coming out is just going to be clustered dextrin on its own. There's not going to be any mix. There's not going to be any blend. It's just clustered dextrin because I feel like why, why mix and blend something that works perfectly by itself. Um, Vitargo, on the other hand, I feel like is much slower and has left me feeling bloated at times or the last thing I want to feel when I'm training is bloated. I don't want to feel like my stomach is being interrupted. My digestion is being interrupted. My workout is being interrupted. So Vitargo has always been an issue for me. So I kind of stay away from it. I, it was weird. I started using it for a while. I was like, oh, this is great. But it was like after about three weeks to a month, I'm like, my body started to become resistant to it almost. Whereas with the cluster dextrin, I've had no issues at all. When you reach the threshold of what you consider to be sloppy, what you consider too sloppy during a bulk, do you diet down or hold there and let your body recomp? Uh, the second, the latter part of that statement is true. Um, in my in my past, if I started to get a little bit too carried away, I wouldn't necessarily go on a diet. You know, some guys do these mini cuts and things like that. I'm not saying it's a, it's a bad thing to do, but for me, if I reached the point where I was like, okay, things are getting out of hand or not out of hand, but they're kind of getting there. I'm like, okay, I'm going to hold steady right here. I might not change the diet. I might add in a little bit of cardio, but more often than not, I would just hold still and I would just keep training as hard as I could. And my body would kind of start to grow into that weight. Like I would get leaner as the months went by. And that was just kind of my way of doing things. So I would get to say 290 and I would start to feel like, okay, 290 is kind of like a little bit sloppy 290. It's, you know, my abs are barely visible now. I would just stay there. Like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to stay here. Maybe eat a little less snacks, maybe add a little bit of cardio, but not a cut. Just kind of take away some of the junk a little bit. And um, that would usually do the trick. And then I would say three or four months later, I would still be 290, but I would definitely have a better look than I did four months previous. So that was kind of always my strategy. How to determine if you have above, above average genetics uh, being training for four years of consistent, consistently and natural. Well, I mean, structure is the main part. You always want to look for wide shoulders, smaller waist, narrow hips, you know, a little bit flaring quads. Structure is, is probably the first thing you should look for. Second thing you need to look for is how easy is it for you to put on muscle? I mean, you could have great structure, but not everybody can get to 290 or 300 pounds. I mean, if I don't know how tall you are, it doesn't say in your stats here, but you know, if you're five, nine or above, you're going to have to get to 280 or 290 in off season. So you can diet down and be on stage at 250, 260. If you want to be competitive, at least in the open class, if you want to be classic, it's a little different, obviously, but my, the main component I would look at structurally or for genetics is your structure. The second component I would look at is how easily can you put on muscle? And the third component is I would look at is how symmetrical, how symmetric are your proportions? Like, are your proportions even? Or is your, is your lower body severely, are you balanced? Is your lower body severely lacking in muscle? You have, you know, really skinny legs and a big upper body. Is it something that you think you can fix? Or if you've been trying to fix it, your legs just aren't growing? Because depending on what class you enter into, you know, if you're going to be classic or if you're going to be uh, open, you're going to need to be balanced, right? If you're going to be men's physique, it's a little different. You can put on a pair of shorts and kind of walk out there, but um, these are kind of things that matter to me first. Genetics, uh, the ability to put on mass, 
and symmetry. Now, two and three can be interchangeable, but those three things are your components you're going to look at for uh, whether or not you can be a, a good pro or even turn pro. So those are the things I would start with first. What carb sources do you recommend before training for endurance? Um, definitely you want something that's not going to, it's going to, it's going to digest a little bit slower, but not super slow. So you don't want a ton of fiber. Like, you know, for a little bit of endurance, honestly, what I would do is a little bit of coconut oil in rice. The rice is going to digest quickly, but if you put a little bit of fat with it, put a little bit of like a teaspoon or tablespoon of coconut oil with it, the coconut oil is not such a heavy fat that it will slow you down and ruin your, your digestion. It'll actually digest pretty quickly, but it will slow down the rice enough that you'll have a longer sustained amount of energy. Now, I know some people might be thinking, well, if you want a longer sustained energy, you might want to go with like a oatmeal or a sweet potato, but I feel like that stuff kind of digests too slow. And I don't want to be running with like a bowl of oatmeal in my stomach. So I don't necessarily think that's a good idea. If you digest sweet potatoes a little bit faster, you might want to do sweet potato, you know, without the skin, that was a little less fiber. Um, but for me personally, I just go with rice and a little bit of coconut oil. And, and that to me, that would be uh, a way to sustain yourself. How can I pick a show to compete in? Is there a specific website? Uh, if you're in Canada, it's the CPA website. And if you're in the United States, it's the NPC website. You go there, you, there's, you can see all the information there that you need. Most memorable first impression. Um, are we talking bodybuilding? Because if we're talking women, it was probably my wife. <laughs> if we're talking about my, the most memorable first impression I ever had, it was my wife. Uh, because it kind of blew me away and then, you know, we end up getting married. So that's the most memorable first impression I ever had. Uh, if we're talking about bodybuilding, I was probably most impressed by Dorian Yates and I wasn't, you know, he wasn't even on stage when I saw him. He just had a, he had an aura about him. It was actually, no, you know, it goes before that. I think my most memorable first impression of bodybuilding was Marcus rule. We were driving to Toronto to see a friend compete in a Toronto pro-am and uh, Marcus rule and Dexter Jackson did that show. Dexter took second, Marcus took first and Marcus rule walked across, was walking. We were pulling up to the, the venue. It was still, it was the more, it was the day before. So they must've just been finishing registration. Marcus rule was walking across the street in Toronto to the hotel or to somewhere to eat. I can't remember. I don't know where they were going, but they were, and all I saw was this mountain of a human. And I'm like, you know, now, now if I saw somebody like Marcus rule, I would be like, Oh, crazy. That guy's huge. But back then I had never seen anything like that in my life. And I was like, that is not human. Like that's not, you can't get like that. So it was, a, it was an extreme shocker, right? And I and I thought to myself the next day when I actually watched the show, I thought, you know, even though Marcus is the biggest guy, I still love Dexter's physique. Dexter was still my favorite at that show. But the, the, the craziest first impression I ever had was probably Marcus Rule was, I, I had never, you know, because I had never been exposed to bodybuilding. So being about 190 pounds at the time, seeing somebody that size was just not even in the realm of, of anything I could think of. Okay. 
any particular reason John has you alternate between brown and jasmine rice? Uh, I don't know. The only thing I could say is maybe the brown rice has a little bit of fiber. So the jasmine rice probably wants me to eat more pre-workout. Uh, actually, what is my pre-workout meal? No, it's cream of rice. I, I don't know. Actually, I didn't even ask him. You know, sometimes I don't ask. I just do that stuff. To be honest with you, he probably doesn't care. I've worked with him for so many years. He he probably wouldn't care if I just had all jasmine rice or all brown rice. But uh, it would be something I have to ask him. If I had to, If I had to make any guess, it would literally be just as a little bit of fiber in the brown rice. Uh, what effect can diet soda have on your diet? I don't know. Some people say none. Some people say a lot. Personally, I don't think any. It depends though. I mean, everything in moderation, right? I think if you're drinking, uh, diet soda all day long, you're probably not going to be getting the hydration that you need because you're not drinking enough water. Uh, and I also don't think, I don't think sweetener is a bad thing, but I think sweetener, you know, just like I said, moderation is everything. So I think if you're drinking like, you know, four five, six diet sodas a day, and you're getting all that sweetener, it can't be really good for you. Um, or not necessarily good for you, in a, like it's going to harm you, but it might mess up your digestion, which, you know, inevitably will harm you in other ways. Um, I think if you're having, like for me, when I diet, I kind of save the diet sodas for like when I'm really craving. So I'll have one or two a week, maybe. I think if you're doing like one or two or three sodas a week, I think, you know, it's nothing. It's not going to hurt you. Sweetener, you know, some people say sweetener is bad for you. Some people say it's not. Depends on what study you read. But uh, I honestly don't think two or three diet sodas a week is going to kill you. I think, like I said, everything in moderation and you're fine. It's definitely not going to have any impact on your fat loss, okay? Because I know some people say, well, it's going to trigger insulin response, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. There's no calories there. So in my opinion, it's, uh, it's harmless as far as fat loss goes because there's not any calories and you're just kind of kind of killing a, a sweet tooth a little bit and you move along with your day. As long as you're working hard enough, you're doing your cardio, you're training one soda a day or every other day is not going to be detrimental to your progress. Tips on reducing leg soreness after training, just so it's possible to move without looking like John Wayne. Um, the best tip is going to be counter counterintuitive, which is more training but obviously not like crazy training. But one of the best things you can do is after you're done your leg training is do a 20 minute walk on the treadmill or stretch one or the other or both. But if you get that 20 minute walk on the treadmill, it'll start to help recover and get some new blood flow. And then the next day, same thing next morning, get on the treadmill or a bike and kind of get some fresh blood. You want to get fresh blood pumping through the muscle all the time. So they say, you know, like a little bit of, less strenuous exercise can actually help recover a muscle faster than just sitting on your ass. Actually, I just did a podcast with Stan Efferding who explains this actually very clearly. It's something you're doing with John Jones in preparation for his UFC heavyweight title fight is they're having recover, having him recover by doing other exercises. Now the other exercises are not load bearing exercises. They're not a heavy stress on the body, but they're enough to get blood, fresh blood moving through the system and kind of help your body recover a little faster that way, which I can attest to because when I'm prepping for a show, um, if I'm training legs, I get sore, but I got to get up the next, do my, next day, do my cardio, sometimes twice a day. My soreness seems to go away a lot faster than if, like in the off season where I train legs and just sit on my ass for four or five, six days without no cardio, 
it takes me a little longer to recover. There could be other factors for those two things, but I know when I'm doing a little bit of cardio, I recover a little faster. So I would say get a little bit of cardio in, get a little bit of extra motion in, maybe walk outside, do something like that, kind of get your get some fresh blood in your legs. Um, let's see, what do we got here? How long was your longest prep? 22 weeks. Longest prep was 22 weeks, and it was absolutely uh, the worst thing I ever did in my life. I weighed in at 282 pounds going to my prep for my first nationals in 2004. And I dieted for 22 weeks. I went from 282 down to 204 on stage. And I was fat at 282. It wasn't like a good, I was sloppy. Uh, I think that was the year I got my nickname, Haas, just for being such a big, fat off-season. <laughs> like it just wasn't, it wasn't a good, uh, good look. But I lost 80 pounds, almost 80 pounds for that show, or 82 pounds. And No. Jesus, I'm, I'm way off. Okay, anyway, I lost a little, I lost about 80 pounds for that show. And the 22 weeks was absolutely like I could, I was hallucinating by the end because I just, I just didn't want to diet anymore. I was drained. I was doing cardio like twice a day. I was, you know, it, it's just too long. Like 22 weeks is not necessary. And I know some people do 20, but usually the people that are doing 20 are on an off season diet. That's clean, like a clean off season diet for the first four. It's just kind of they get rid of all the junk food and then they start at 16 and then they go 16 all the way through, which is, I know it sounds crazy. It's only six weeks, but it's more reasonable. But 22 weeks of hard dieting to get off 80 pounds was, yeah, I don't ever want to do that again. I would never suggest it to anybody else. That's why when I say it's okay to eat and get chubby in the off season, it's okay. Just you don't want to get sloppy because when you get sloppy, that's when you have to start dieting for 22 weeks and put yourself through hell. If you get a little bit chubby, it's okay. It will come off, you know, if you work hard enough, but yeah, that was a little bit way overboard. So that was definitely the longest prep I had. And the worst, kind of the worst mistake I had made in the off season was going that far. Uh, advice for someone looking to compete the first time. Well, it's a pretty broad question, but I could say this. First thing you should do is find a coach or if you've done enough research yourself, get your formula together. And then the second most important thing you can do is be as consistent as possible and do not stray from your plan. So if you have a plan that's working, don't start saying to yourself, oh, I need to add this or I need to add that. Or if you have a coach, you know, some other advice is this. This is actually very important. If you have a coach that you trust, don't listen to everybody else. A lot of beginners, one of the things they do is they'll hire a coach they trust and then their buddy will say one thing and their other buddy will say another thing and their other buddy will, and next thing you know, you're, you're like, oh, well, maybe I should add more carbs. Maybe I should add this food or maybe I should add that drug or build out a plan, whether it's with by yourself, with some knowledge that you've done some research, build out a plan or find a coach that can build out a good plan for you. And then be very consistent and just tune out all the noise. Just be very methodical. Pay attention to all the details. Cross all your T's, dot all your I's. Don't cut any corners. Don't add a gram of rice here or there. Don't add a teaspoon of peanut butter here or there. Go through the shit. Okay. That's what it is. It, the first time you get you go through a show, go through a the first time you go through a competition prep. 
you are going to learn a lot about yourself and a lot about what you can handle what a lot and a lot about what you can't handle and you're either going to finish feeling very accomplished and very strong and very very proud that you can do almost anything or you're going to cheat here and there and cut corners here and there and you're going to finish and not feel anything because the the people who stick to their shit and they get to the end and they suffer through every single because it's going to be a suffer okay it's going to suck it's going not going to be easy you're going to have to suffer if you want to get really shredded especially your first time because you're going to go through a bunch of things that you you never felt before and this is assuming you're not genetically like a shredded person you're going to deal with things you haven't dealt before because that last, the, the closer you get to shredded, the harder it becomes for you to do things. Like your body will just resist everything. And you have to keep forcing and forcing and forcing until you finally get there. And if you go through it with honesty and belief in yourself and you, and you don't lie to yourself ever, you stick to everything the way it's written. When you finish, if the plan was done right and you get shredded, you will. I think the rest of the, the rest of the decisions in your life will become easier for you because you know, it's almost like it gives you a confidence that look, I put this on paper. I did it. Even when I was in pain, I did it. Even when I was suffering, I did it. Even when I was tired, I did it. And this basically taught me that when I really want to do something, I can do it. So my biggest advice to someone doing their first show is use the pain in your favor to make yourself a stronger person. Use the pain to teach you something about yourself. Don't use the pain as an excuse to quit or cut corners because it will only make you a worse off in the long run. Cause once you cheat, once you will cheat all the time. Once you cut one corner, you'll start cutting all the corners and the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So take this opportunity to teach your, yourself how strong you really are. That's, that's what I would, that's what I got out of my first show. And that's what I think everybody should learn to get out of bodybuilding. Cause that's the real beauty of it is that self mastery of saying, this is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to do it. No matter what I have to deal with, I'm going to get to this end goal. And when that happens, you really learn a lot about yourself. So that's the most important of most important piece of advice I can give. Is carb cycling, is carb cycling something worth implementing as a beginner? Uh, sure. I don't see why not. Carb cycling is not something that's for advanced or intermediate or beginner. Carb cycling is simply just a system that somebody would use so they can get in a lot of calories, but not get fat. I think I have a carb cycling video I put up on my YouTube channel. I think on the hostile channel, um, Justin Harris probably does a better job of explaining it. He's in the science more than anybody I know. Um, basically what you're doing is giving yourself a high, low and a medium or a high, medium and a low day or a high, high, low, a high day. And then a couple of low days, however you want to structure your, Carb cycling, to me, carb cycling is just a way for you to get in a maximum amount of food, but still have some low days so that you're not getting fat. And I think that's the benefit to it. And I don't think it matters uh, whether you're just starting or not. In my opinion, if you're just starting, I think it, the best thing to do is to learn how to just stay on a diet. Just find out what calorie range you need to be in, whether it be, you know, if you're new, I don't know if it's going to be 2,500 or 3,000 or whatever. 
find out that calorie range you need to be in and just stay on a diet for a few months and learn how to stay on a diet. And then I would start worrying about carb cycling and keto and all these different other things. But like the first thing a beginner, if I, if somebody comes to me, like I've never done bodybuilding before in my life and I want to learn how to do it. The first thing I'm going to say is let's get you on a diet that suits your calorie needs. And I want you to just do it for a few months. We're going to make changes when you need to, like you may make it up and you may say, Oh, I'm getting fat. I got to take a couple of calories away or, Oh, I'm losing weight. I got to add some calories. But once you find that barometer, I want you to hold that for a little while and just get used to being on a diet. So you know what it takes. And then after that, then you can say, you know what? Okay. I want to try this other program or this other system or whatever. I mean, sometimes it's not rocket science. Sometimes you don't need to carb cycle. Sometimes you can just like me, I can just set my diet at 3,500 calories and be like, okay, I'm going to sit here and I'm just going to train and let my body grow into this weight. Um, so, you know, everybody's different. You got to find what works for you, but no, I don't think you can't do carb cycling just because you're new. It just might not be the best thing for somebody who's just starting out. Is there one carb source that is superior to all, or it totally depends on the way the person is attempting to use that carb. I don't think there's a carb source that's superior to all. And I do think it totally depends on the person and what they're using it for. You know, some people can get away with just, you know, fruit. It depends what they want. They're not trying to get huge. They don't need a lot of starchy carbs. They don't need long lasting energy. They just want, you know, a quick sugar spike. They're going to have a, a fruit. They're going to do an orange or a banana or something like that. If you're somebody who needs a long lasting energy, you need a lot of fiber. You need something that's going to digest really slowly. You're going to go for oatmeal or a sweet potato. If you want a starch that's going to hit hard and give you a boost of energy, but might not last as long, you're probably going to go with rice or potato. Um, if you're looking for something more calorie dense, you're probably going to go with pasta. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different reasons why you would use different carbs, but at the end of the day, unless you're talking between complex and simple carbs, um, or for in a more simpler way, a starchy or sugary carb, I don't think there's very much difference. Um, and really, if you want to break down the science all the way down, sugar is sugar, whether it's long lasting or quick. It's, it's a tough question to answer because if we're talking about bodybuilding, me personally, I want starchy carbs that are going to digest quickly. I want to get in the carb. I want my body to use it and I don't want it to stick around because I don't want it to ruin my appetite. So if you're talking about bodybuilding for me, I'm like, okay, I'm good with rice. I'm good with potato. Um, I'm good with sweet potato, maybe a little less, not as much. Um, I'm good with rice pasta. I'm good with cream of rice. Um, if I want something that's going to sit longer because I, you know, I'm not eating a lot of food. So I want some carbs that are going to sustain me a little, I'll go with like an oatmeal because I'm not eating as much food. So I want something that's going to stick around a bit. So there's a whole host of reasons why you would use certain carbs, but at the end of the day, there are a few carbs in the bodybuilding world that are universally used, um, that are, aren't that different to be honest with you, like potato, rice, sweet potato, oatmeal, cream of rice, you know, rice, pasta, even pasta, you know, you can, you can kind of interchange these things and be fine. Um, so to me, the most important thing when picking a carb, if you're going to pick like a starchy carb for bodybuilding, for example, the most important thing for me is what time of day are you using it and how fast or slow does it digest? Those are the things I look for when I'm picking, 
when I'm picking out what carbs I want to eat, that's what I look for, right? I'll give you some examples. Pre-workout, I don't want anything slow. I don't want to have oatmeal before I work out. And this is me personally. I'm not saying everybody because some people may digest oatmeal a little quickly, more quickly than others. I don't really think it's a great idea, but everyone's different, right? But I don't think it's a great idea. But for me personally, and I'll explain why. I'm not going to do oatmeal pre-workout because it's going to digest really slowly and it's I'm going to feel still bloated while I'm training, right? I'm probably not going to do a sweet potato for the same reason. It's a little bit higher in fiber. It's going to take a little bit longer to digest. I probably could do it if I want to give myself a little bit more time before training, but if I want the quickest, best source, I'm probably going to go with rice or maybe potato. Probably rice is my best bet. It's in, it's out. I have no digestion issues with it. I'm not bloated after half an hour. I can go train. It doesn't even matter if I eat like, you know, three cups of rice. Usually an hour later, I'm good to go work out. So rice or cream of rice is probably going to be my pre-workout meal because of the digestibility of it. Um, if I'm on a hard diet where I'm eating very low calories, and let's say I'm only eating like 150 grams of carbs, and my last meal has like 40 grams of carbs in it. 40 grams of carbs is not that much, right? So instead of eating like two thirds cup of rice or something like that, which is about 40 grams. I'm probably going to go for two thirds cup of oatmeal because even though it won't make a lot of volume out of the oatmeal, it will satiate me a lot longer. I'll eat that. I'll eat that two thirds a cup of oatmeal and I'll probably be able to go to sleep comfortably because it's going to digest slower. It's going to make me feel like I ate something a little bit more substantial. So there are different reasons why I would choose different carbs. Post-workout, I probably want potato. My post-workout, my potatoes or rice, but usually potatoes, potatoes, I feel like they hit me real hard and I get, they just, I get a really good response from them. I feel full when I eat potato, like muscle full when I eat potatoes. So these are some of the things you have to consider, right? If you eat a certain food before training and it makes you feel more full, like a better pump, that's the food you want to eat. Don't listen to anybody else. If let's say pre-workout, you've tried all the different carbs, right? You, you know, you try potato, sweet potato, oatmeal, whatever, whatever, whatever. And you ate one and it digested well. And then you went to the gym and you had an awesome pump. That's the one, right? Assuming all other things are equal, like your sleep and your water and all your other, the rest of your diet, but you're, in, you're just exchanging that one carb source pre-workout. If you can find that out, that's the carb for you. And for me, it's usually rice. And if I, if I have a little bit more time, I'll have potato, but, um, that's kind of the way I like to go. So, but like I said, everybody's different and everybody's, you know, some people can handle oatmeal pre-workout. Some people can handle, you know, some people only go through, go with rice cakes. You know what I mean? I mean, it just depends on the person and what they like, but definitely that's the longest answer I've given, but just to cap it off, there is not one carb source that's superior to all the others. That's not just not that I, that I know of because they're all different and all good for different reasons. Um, if you find a must certain muscle is not growing as you'd like, what is the first thing you change exercise selection or reps and tempo? Um, if I find a muscle is not growing, the first thing I would think is I would look at my form. Um, I would only look at exercise selection if I wasn't feeling something. Okay. So and that's why I said form first. So let's take back, for example, right? A lot of people have trouble growing their back, but it's usually because they can't feel their back. They can't, you know, they'll be pulling and they just can't, they get in a lot of arms, they're getting a lot of shoulders. They're not getting a lot of back. 
So the first thing I would look at is your form. Why are you not feeling your back, right? If your form is perfect, you're pulling with the proper point of intent, like you're pulling from your elbow and you're bringing it all the way in. You still can't feel it. After a few weeks of doing that, I would say, okay, you know what? Maybe let's try a different movement and see how that works. So first thing I would look at is form. If my form is perfect and I've been doing this movement for a few weeks, six, four, five, six weeks, I'm not feeling anything. Okay, let me try a different exercise, okay? If I try a different exercise, I'm still, maybe I'm feeling it, but not that much better. Then I think to myself, okay, let me add more volume. So in the case of back, for example, first thing I did was learn my form. Once I learned my form, I'm like, okay, I can kind of feel it, but I don't feel like crazy, but I kind of feel it. And I'm using back as, because this is exactly what happened to me, right? Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm not, still not getting the development I want, right? Let me, let me just try a couple of different exercises. So I tried some different things. I tried supported T-bar rows. I tried T-bar rows off the floor. I tried some barbell rows, some reverse grip barbell rows. Okay, I'm starting to feel things. Okay, these different exercises are kind of getting me in touch with my back. I'm getting a good mind-muscle connection, but I'm still not getting the growth fast enough. So add more volume. So, you know, one of the things here is reps and tempo. Reps and tempo is something you can change in the workout. Yes, you can You can start doing like slower negatives and things like that, that's for sure. But I would do that no matter what. But if I've gone through, um, I've gone through my form, I've gone through exercise selection, after that I would go through volume. How much am I doing? Am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? Am I not putting enough emphasis on the sets that I am doing? If I'm putting a full amount of emphasis on the sets I am doing and I'm not doing enough, I'll say, okay, you know what? Let me add more. If I am doing enough and there's a lot of volume that day, let's say I'm doing six exercises already. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe this needs a different, a two-pronged approach. So after I tried all those things I just mentioned, I said, okay, I'm going to split my back into two days. I'm going to do a width day and a thickness day. So then I go, okay, the width day, I'm now I'm doing more volume, but it's on two separate days. So I'm giving my back two days to grow instead of one with day. I'm doing all my pull downs, lat pull, like wide grip, pull downs, close grip, pull downs, reverse grip, pull downs, standing pull downs, maybe some pullovers, all the stuff that would make your back wide. Right. On the thickness day, like three or four days later, I come back and do the thickness day. And then I would do all my hard shit, right? My rowing, my T bars, my dumbbell rows, my deadlifts or rack deads, all that stuff. Now that's when I started to see my back grow, right? Because now I have proper form. I figured out what exercises I, I can actually feel. I've added more exercises now because I have two days. So I have like eight different exercises I'm doing, right? Because I have like four or five on my width day, I have four or five on my thickness day. I got like eight or nine, 10 body parts now, exercises now that I'm doing for back, but I'm doing them on separate days. So I'm still getting a good benefit because you put them all in one day. Now you've just beat the shit out of your back. You're probably going to regress instead of progress. So I split them up, right? It's kind of like if your legs aren't growing, you can split your hams and calves or sorry, your hams and your quads, right? Try to do them all in one day. Something's going to suffer. It's going to, you're going to get tired. The last end of the workout is not going to be great. Take your quads, put them on one day, take your hams, put them on another day. Now you can start to see some development. So like I said, it's a step-by-step thing. Don't do them all at once. Figure them out little by little. So first, check your form. Second, start doing some different exercises. Start seeing what you actually can feel. If that works, stay there. Use those exercises. Get as big as you can from them. Um, if that doesn't work, then start adding some volume. 
Okay. Add to that day. If you're only doing four exercises, maybe try add five, maybe try add an extra set to each exercise. If still it's not working, then add more volume, but break the body parts up or break that body part up, whether it be back or whether it be legs, if it can be broken up, if it's a bigger muscle group that you can break up into two separate days, do that. That way you can add more volume. Now, if it's a smaller body part that you can't break up into two days, what I would start doing is after, after, um, form exercise selection volume, I would start adding intensity techniques. So you're going to start adding things like cluster sets to your, you know, the last set of each exercise, you can start adding like a cluster set or a drop set or something that can extend you beyond failure, right? Because people talk about going to failure all the time, right? But one of the things that they that has been shown is that you grow muscle a lot more if you can go beyond failure. So take the muscle to failure on one set. And then the set after that, take it to beyond failure, meaning you fail, then you do like a rest pause, or you do a drop set, or you do a cluster set, uh, or some four reps with a partner. And that takes you beyond failure. Now you've added more density to your workout. And this is kind of the premise behind Patrick tours workouts, is you're adding more density to the workout instead of just more overall volume. So these are all things you can start to employ. But like I said, first form, then exercise selection, then you can work on rep speed, tempo, intensity techniques, things like that. Volume will fit in there as well. Um, talking about the photo that this pit, that this post was on, it says veins popping is that genetics. I've been down seven to 7% body fat and still haven't had the veins pop like people I see. Any advice on getting those veins to the surface? Well, one of the things that is going to cause, well, veins versus genetic. Like, have, like, you know, if you look at like Frank McGrath, he's not bigger than a lot of other pro bodybuilders, right? So it's not just size, but he does have a lot of vascularity. So genetics plays a part. Um, the size, your size plays a part. The bigger you get, the bigger your veins get. So they're going to show more, right? So if you take a, uh, if you took a 160 pound guy, that's 7%, his veins aren't going to show the same way as a 260 pound guy at 7%, right? So that also plays a factor. And then also the leaner you are, the more they're going to show 7% is lean, but actually 7% is very lean. It should show at that point. So at that point, I would say it's either genetic or, uh, it's muscle size. The only other thing it could be is if you're on a really low cal diet, those muscles aren't those, that vascularity is not going to pop. Right. So when you get to that 7%, you get to that 6% or 5% body fat, whatever it is, if you do have potential to have good vascularity, you're going to have to eat something that's like sugary or something that's going to actually cause those veins to expand. And, and you're going to see that vascularity. So that could be the other thing, but first and foremost, I would point to genetics. And then I would point to muscle size, uh, having both having an impact on what your veins look like. Uh, how to manage a left to right imbalance left chest is much bigger than left left leg sweep is much bigger than the right. This is an ongoing issue with every single bodybuilder and your, uh, muscle imbalance is probably much bigger in your own eyes than in everybody else's. Uh, me, for example, my entire left side of my body all the way, if you cut me from the top to bottom is bigger than the right side. Um, so you know, you can do a lot of unilateral movements. You start isolating one side more than the other. 
Um, maybe on the right side, you're using a little bit heavier weight, something to kind of counter and try and make up for it. The last thing you want to do is ignore it and just keep doing barbell movements because you want to be able to give that side a little bit more attention. Whether or not it's going to go away, I can't say it will because I don't, I've honestly never seen anybody correct a muscle imbalance 100%. You can get them close, but the smaller side is always going to be, I shouldn't say always. I mean, you could stop training the bigger side, but as long as you're training your entire body, the one side is always going to be a little bit bigger, but just, you just have to remember that you're probably the only one that could see it, but I would do a lot of unilateral movements, you know, warm one arm at a time and just really focus on the arm that's uh, lagging behind, maybe give it a little bit of extra work. Uh, but that's, that's about all I, I think you can do really. You could add some, sorry, before we go on from that, you could add some uh, intensity techniques like doing occlusion bands. Let's say you're like, for me, my right arm is smaller than my left. So I could put an occlusion band on this arm and train with it. That may spark some growth in that muscle that, you know, it's not, it might spark something in that muscle that I'm not getting currently. So there's some things you can try, but uh, more often than not, just some unilateral movements just to try and focus on the weaker arm or weaker leg or whatever it is. But just always know that even your favorite pro, your favorite bodybuilder, your favorite physique guy, whoever it may be, they have the same problem. It's just not as noticeable to you as it is to them. Uh, what is good pre-workout nutrition tip if you wake up at 3 a.m. and work out around 3.30 a.m.? Uh, I would eat a big meal before I went to bed. So if you go to bed at like 9 p.m. or something like that, I would eat a big meal. And then pre-workout, I would either take uh, an intra R3. Well, you take, if you want, you take your pre-workout to kind of wake up. So you take your hostility. And then I would take my intra R3 during my workout. So I have my EAAs and my carbs. Now, what I, what you actually probably should do is I would probably do, yeah, I would probably do the hostility at home. Uh, like kind of like after I was dressed and all that. And then on my way to the gym, I would kind of start sipping on my intra R3. And that way it'll give you the EAAs and the carbs you need during your workout. So you're not, you know, destroying your muscle. And you've eaten a meal the night before, a pretty big meal the night before to kind of satisfy whatever nutritional needs you need while training. But you want to get in those EAAs pre-workout and intra-workout. So I would actually do a, a scoop of EAAs with my hostility. So some silanine and hostility. And then when I go to the gym, I would do my intra R3 as well. Now, normally I wouldn't say you need aminos pre-workout because you don't if you have a meal. But if you're not going to have a meal, you just had the one night, but the night before, I think it's probably a good idea to get some silonine in with the hostility, especially because silonine is also a hydration product. So you want to be hydrated when you go to the gym or else you're going to be really weak and your pumps are going to suck. So this could kind of help you spark that hydration a little bit more. What are your top prep hacks for things like volume snacks or low calorie foods to keep you in the game? I don't have any. Uh, I, I don't, first of all, this isn't, you know, you probably want to refer to Greg Doucette's channel for this. Uh, Greg's really good at getting these kind of these snacky foods in and still keeping calories in check. I don't really do that, man. I do the chicken and rice. I'm an old school bodybuilder. It's what I like. And when I'm craving something, I don't just suffer through it. And one of the only ways I get through things is I use those little Mio squirt bottles, you know, those uh, sugar-free Mio or sugar-free Kool-Aid uh, or Tang. There's a sugar-free Tang. That's actually pretty good too. The little squirt drops. 
So I'll, I'll put some of that in like a one and a half liter jug or like my hostile jug and I'll just slam the whole thing and I'll basically be full from water. So I know it doesn't sound appealing. doesn't sound like a, a trick of any sort or, you know, some, some life hack, but I just don't do that shit, man. It's just not me. So I eat my meal. I drink some water, suffer through, wait till the next meal and I eat again. And that, that's it. I don't really have any uh, tricks up my sleeve. Does a simple carb source post-workout matter? Is white rice better than white bread post-workout or all carbs the same? I don't know, man. These these questions are, are trick questions to me. Like there's so many different people out there saying, oh, all carbs are the same. All carbs are different. Look, all I know is this. Post-workout, you need a carb that is going to probably be a little bit lighter in fiber that your body is going to digest quickly. And it's going to be, it's going to give you a good, insulin spike so it's going to be a little bit higher in sugar i mean some people do rice with honey some people do cream of rice with honey some people do uh peanut butter with jam on, or not peanut butter jam but a, a, a white bread with jam on it some people do rice cakes with jam um there's a whole number of things you do what you want to do is have a little bit of simple sugar with a little bit of starch and you don't want either to be very slow digesting Okay, so well, the simple sugar you don't have to worry about, but the starch you choose should be a little bit faster digesting. Whether you ask me if peanut, if bread is better than rice or this or that, I don't know, man. Uh, you know, this is like it doesn't. It depends what you're talking about. If you're talking about a contest diet, do I want to eat bread? I mean, if I can get more volume out of rice, I want to eat rice because it's going to be more volume. So if if I'm allowed to have 300 calories of carbs. And I can have a bowl this big of rice or two slices of bread. I'm probably going to have a bowl, a big bowl of rice. That's the one I'm going to choose. So, but as far as like, can you still get lean and eat bread? Sure. Is it the choice I want? No, I'm probably going to want things that are going to give me more volume. Uh, that way I feel a little bit more full. So um, going back to the question, does it matter? All carbs are not the same. Because some digest slower than others. And I think post-workout, you want some that digest faster. So you want a starch that digests a little faster. It's going to help you restore those glycogen stores. But you also want a little bit of simple sugar. A little bit of fruit is actually shown to uptake carbs a little faster. So you can add a little bit of fruit or honey or something to that. So jam or something to your starch to help increase uh, glucose uptake. So that's what I've always done. That's what I was always taught. That's just kind of what I was. Now, if you want to eat bread and jam, I don't think it's going to be very much of a difference. You're probably just going to eat less. And if you're in off season, then it doesn't matter. You just eat whatever you want. Where can I get a black cap for my hostile jug? You can't. The hostile jug has a white cap and it is a, it's our look. It's the white cap with the big ass jug. So sorry, man. Uh, Ronnie stated Arnold had the best chest of all time. Arnold did his presses with a fairly wide grip. Does everyone advise against this, assuming you have a healthy shoulders to do it properly and execute? Um, I don't know why. I don't really advise that anybody do a, a wide, like a super wide grip on chest because you're just going to put a lot of strain in that on these insertions. Now you might be healthy now. You might be doing them now. And you know, you're doing a super wide grip like this and you're, you're doing one plate is totally fine, but 
over time and as you get stronger and you start putting one plate two plates three plates now you got three plates on there with a super wide grip that's a lot of strain on those joints man it's a lot of strain on that pec insertion it's a lot of strain on the bicep insertion um it's just that's a lot of strain on the shoulder joint like i really don't think it's a good idea just for a little bit of extra like you have to in bodybuilding sometimes you have to weigh out the risk and the reward right like what is the risk what is the risk of doing the super wide grip versus the reward? Okay, the reward might be, sure, I might develop my chest a little bit more. It might be isolating more, which I don't even think it would be, to be honest. But let's say it does. Let's say you're going to get 5% more development if you go wide. But you're putting 10% more chance of injury onto your pec insertion, shoulder, bicep insertion, all these different areas. So now you've outweighed, you've outweighed the the re, the the reward because your risk is too high, right? It's kind of like when I had Dorian Yates on the podcast. He talked about he stopped squatting because he kept injuring his hip. So he's like, "What's the point of doing it if every time I get to a heavier weight, I injure my hip and then I got to go all the way back to the beginning?" So sure, you're going to start training with a super wide grip, but once you get up to three plates or four plates, and then you tear a pec. Now what? Now you have this pec that's like all the way over here, or you have to get a surgery. You have to have surgery done and you're out for six months. I mean, to me, the safer way to do it is just have a normal grip, shoulder width apart, a little bit wider than shoulder width, and just press normally. Your chest is going to grow. I don't think it's going to mean that much more growth if you have a wider grip. In fact, I don't know if it's going to be any. It might just been, it might have just been Arnold's. If Arnold did do that, it might have just been his, his, that was his comfort zone. Like that's where he was comfortable. But um, I don't think it's something I would advise anybody to do because like I said, the risk reward is not, not equal. Uh, I hear you guys, I hear you and the guys speak about using EAAs when doing fasted cardio. Is something you, is this something you do during contest prep? And if so, why? Yes, I always drink my Silo 9 first thing in the morning. Um, I usually drink a scoop either pre or during and then a scoop after. So it just depends how I, how I do it. But the reason I do it is just to muscle sparing, right? And also to get hydration set up. So Silonine is a hydration product as well as EAAs. So first thing in the morning, the first thing you want to do is get hydrated. The very first thing you want to do is get hydrated. So with Silonine, it's perfect. I get my hydration in and then I get my EAAs in. The EAs are kind of muscle sparing. So when I'm doing my cardio, I don't feel like I'm wasting muscle. I have a little bit of EAs flowing through me. It's kind of my reasoning. And if it's in prep, it's okay. I mean, EAs are pretty much calorie free. So, you know, I'm not hurting my, I'm not hurting my chances of getting any leaner by drinking EAs. I'm only helping my muscle recovery. And as far as being fasted, Fasted cardio is not going to burn more fat than not doing fasted cardio. It's just, it just feels better. So it doesn't, so the EAAs are not affecting anything to do with fat burning and they're not affecting me feeling better or feeling worse. I feel better because I have a little bit of EAAs and I have a little bit of hydration and now I can do my cardio properly. Um, but they do not affect your fat loss in any way. So I would always, I would always err on the side of, muscle recovery over fat loss always want to hold your muscle 
and then worry about the fat loss. You don't want to sacrifice muscle for fat loss because once the muscle starts to go away, the fat loss becomes harder to lose. The more muscle you have, the faster you can lose fat. So I don't ever want to sacrifice muscle gains or muscle sparing or muscle maintenance just to lose fat. Because the less this goes, the less this this side, the, the muscle side goes down, the more this fat side becomes stubborn and doesn't want to go away. What are your thoughts on insulin optimizing glucose support supplements like humaslin? Um, I don't know. I don't use them. I never have. I know there's a lot of uh, glucose agent products out there. Um, Hostile might come out with one eventually, but I honestly have never used one. I don't think, I, I don't know how much it helps. Like if I eat hundred grams of carbs, I don't know how much it's helping me uptake. I think my body does a pretty good job of it on my, on its own. I don't take insulin. Um, I honestly don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I've never used humaslin and humuslin, and I've never really used any of those glucose uptake agents. So I, I don't really know. Would you rather have a wide back and smaller shoulders or cap delts, but have your back isn't as big? This is kind of a would you rather question. Sorry, guys. I'll, I'll move on from this. Um, if you could only afford one item out of the two, which one would you go for? Hostility or bloodshot? It's a reoccurring theme, guys. Hostility is going to be an all-around pre-workout with stim in it. It's going to help you have also some nootropics. So it's going to get you, it's not going to get you stimmed out. So if you're a stim junkie, that's not what it's for, but it will give you enough energy to 300 milligrams of caffeine and wake you up. And then there's a good amount of nootropics in there to keep you really zoned in on your workout. You'll be really focused. Um, I love that product. It's my baby. Um, it has everything you need in it. Now, if you're a pump junkie and you're like, I don't care about STEM. I don't care about energy. I don't care about mental focus. I don't care about all that. I just want to experience the best pump I can. You go for bloodshot. Bloodshot also doesn't have any STEM in it. So if you train, you know, at eight, nine, 10 o'clock at night, and you want to be able to get to sleep afterwards, bloodshot's the way to go. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, bloodshot would be the way to go that way. Cause then that's really, really pump focused. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Hostility has a good amount of pump ingredients in it as well. Bloodshot has one or two more, but it also has no stim. And I think that's the real benefit to people is they're like, okay, well, I train late at night and I get no stim and this actually has a little bit more pump in it. So that's the one I want to go for. So it really depends what your ultimate goal at the gym is. Just generally speaking, when doing a pro split variation, do you think five training days per week versus six may be a bit more optimal for recovery? And for six days, would you perhaps suggest a three-on, one-off rotation? Um, yeah, you could do three-on, one-off, three-on, one-off, but then you're not really, that's more of like an eight-day, isn't it? Because you're doing three-on, one-off, three-on, one-off. So now that's eight days total. So I like that idea. If you do an eight-day split where it goes three-on, one-off, three on one off repeat. Um, but if you're trying to keep it for like within a week, uh, I definitely go five days. So I would either go two on one off three on one off, or I would go three on one off two on one off. So either way, the most you're training is three days, then two days. Um, I don't think if you're going to stick to like a one week program, you should do six days. So I don't think your plan should be six days, 
then the day off, then repeat. I, I just don't, I did that for a few years, actually caused me a lot of injuries. And it's very hard to recover from unless your diet is perfect and you're eating a lot of food and you're taking extra supplements, right? So I think um, there's rest and recovery is in our sport. I shouldn't say in our sport because some people do value it, but I don't feel like rest and recovery is valued or talked about enough in our sport because we all just love to go train, right? We all just want to go train. We all want to be hardcore. We all want to work out every day. Staying home sucks. So this, you know, there's a need for, like, there's a, there's a real value in staying home and not doing anything and resting. Um, and I don't think it's emphasized enough. And I've been trying to force myself more now to stay home and recover, maybe do some like light walking outside or something. But that extra day has made a big difference in my training. When I force myself to stay away from the gym, I do like, lately what i've been doing is a three on one off three on one off so it's more of an eight day split but um it feels really good and i I don't know if it's beneficial for anybody to train more than three days straight i really feel like the average person should do three days hard take a day off and then go three days hard again that's the most i don't think going four days in a row is is a good idea for really anybody i Unless you're training really light, like if you know you're training light, you know you're not training really heavy, then you can go as many days in a row if you want. But if you're training at your maximum capacity, I feel like three days is the most you should go in a row. Uh, Okay, we'll do a couple more, guys. What age bracket did you pick up the most important habits and lessons that you have stuck with you and what were they? That have stuck with you and what were they? Uh, Probably when I stopped thinking I knew everything. So there's a, there's a, there's a curve me and John Meadows talk about all the time because we see it all the time with every single new lifter that comes on the block. There's this curve where you start and you know, jack shit. And then you go like this. Oh, I know everything. (laughs) It's like, it's only been like a year and you're like, I've read all the studies. I've talked to all these different pros online. I've talked to all these coaches. I know everything. I'm set. I'm good. And you'll hang out there for like two or three years, or if you're really stubborn like me, maybe three, four, five years. And then you'll wake up one day and go, holy fuck, I don't know anything. Right. So then that, so the curve goes up, it stays there for a bit, and then it drops back down. And then you feel like you don't know anything. And there's so much more to know. And you hang out there for a bit. I'm still in that, <laughs> I'm still in that, I don't know anything zone because there's so much to know. And there's the, this is why when I this is why when I give answers to you guys I say look this is the way I did it. This is what worked for me and this is just my knowledge because on the other side of this down scoop where you feel like you know nothing is everything where you actually know everything which takes forever to get to right but that's where you have like the Brad Schoenfelds, the Justin Harrises, the you know the John Meadows like these guys have been studying and studying and studying and they know you know more than they have they not only have the book smarts but they have the in the gym experience too to tell you what in that book is bullshit and what actually works and um i would say if i had to say what years honest if i'm being honest is embarrassing it is i'd say between 30 and 35 maybe not even (laughs) i think it must be like and, and take this advice from me, learn sooner than I did. I, 
I held on to my beliefs for a really long time. I was probably 32 before I finally said, okay, I'm opening my mind to more ideas. And because they would work for me, there's so much like, it's hard to, okay, I'm going to tell you guys something. It's hard to open your mind to new ideas when what you're doing is working. So you got to remember, I put on five or 10 pounds of muscle every year for the first 10 years I worked out and I turned pro and I got contracts and everything. So I thought, I, I thought I knew everything. I'm like, whatever, whatever. I don't care what anybody, else, everything I'm doing is working. This is what works. And then when you finally reach a plateau, you stop and you start looking around and you go, okay, well, what else is there to know? Because I haven't made any progress in a couple of years. And that was it. I had kind of made all this progress till I was about 32. And then I was like, okay, well, I think I got to start to learn some new, learn some new things. And I did. And that's when I got even better. And then 33, 34, 35, I started winning shows. And then, you know, that's where I kind of peaked out, but, um, the sooner you can come down from that initial hill where you think you know it all, the sooner you can, you, you can start to learn uh, everything there is, everything that you need to know, which will take you years. But, uh, and the, the, the problem is, this is the main problem is when you're, in, when you're on that hill at the beginning, when you think you know everything, you can't even admit it to yourself. You actually think you know everything. But I promise you, and this has happened to everybody, even someone like, like Dan Newmeyer, probably one of the smartest guys I know, has even said this. Everybody comes down from that hill and goes, wow, I have to take a few steps back and start re-looking at everything. And um, yeah, so for me, it was, it was, those years came for me when I stopped making progress. And I actually then started to look around and go, what else is there that I'm not doing? It was probably around 32 to 36 I picked up a lot of new information that has really helped me. Uh, okay, let's do one more, one more, one more, one more. I have always worked out in a commercial gym because I don't have a lot of money. And in Milan, there are no serious hardcore gyms. Do good machines make a big difference? I will tell you this. And this is, I, I wholeheartedly believe this training in a gym with awesome atmosphere with other bodybuilders, whether you know them or not, if they're just in the area, that will actually help you to push yourself. But because the age of Instagram has come along, you don't necessarily always need the person to be in your face because you can see them on your phone, right? So Imagine this, in 1980, just random year or whatever, 1980, if you, if you were the only big guy in your gym, you probably thought you were the greatest. You thought you were going to be Mr. Olympia. You might see some magazines here and there, but you probably thought you were the shit, right? Um, I'm saying if you were like a good bodybuilder, right? You probably thought, ah, I can be Mr. Olympia. I can be great. I can be whatever I want until you start to see the guys in real life and you're like, holy shit, I'm way outsized here. Right. If in, in 1980, you worked out at a gym with a whole bunch of other bodybuilders, like, you know, they called the Mecca, right? Everybody went to California to train there. Now, why'd they do that? Cause they are around other bodybuilders that could drive them to be better, which I wholeheartedly believe in. The thing is nowadays there isn't really a Mecca. And the reason for that is you can see everybody already. 
on YouTube, on Instagram, wherever. So I don't need, you know, like if I'm a competitor, let's say I'm competing. I don't need to be in James Hollingshead's gym. I don't need to be in Ian Valer's gym. I don't need to be in, you know, anybody, anybody's gym because I can see them. I can go on my phone and I can see, oh my God, Ian just deadlifted seven plates and James just squatted seven plates and my four plates doesn't mean shit. I better get to work. So nowadays, I guess the point I'm getting to is I would have said to you a while back, atmosphere is the most important thing. Nowadays, I feel like it's important, but because you can still get motivated and see what everybody else is doing, it's not as important. Now, going back to your question, which I've alluded so far is, do you need good machines to be big? And I would say no. If you went to, I mean, you need, you need some stuff. I'm not going to say you can do it with anything. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bullshit you, but you need some, you need the basics, right? But if you walked into Metroflex gym in, in, in Fort Worth, Texas, and you saw what Ronnie Coleman used to become the greatest bodybuilder of all time, it's old beat up shit. It's a squat rack and a bunch of dumbbells and an old ass leg press and a, you know, old ass hack squat machine and, you know, lunges outside and, you know, he's barbell rowing. Most of the stuff he did was free weight shit. So, you know, and I know it's bad to use Ronnie Coleman as an example because he's the greatest bodybuilder of all time. So he probably could have, you know, who knows? He could have developed a, that physique with anything. But it, it's time and time again, it seems to be true, whether it's Ronnie Coleman, whether it's Dorian Yates training at Temple, whether it's, you know, you just kind of can go down a list and name a whole bunch of bodybuilders that didn't have the best of everything and still develop really good physiques. So it's kind of like it's more up here. As long as you have the basics, I'm not going to say you can do it without anything, but as long as you have the basics, it's kind of more in your head. It's like, how far can you push yourself? I mean, if you think about Dorian Yates, he's looking at guys in California all the way, just seeing them in magazines and just going back to his little dungeon and just, he's up here. He's in his own head, charting out, writing everything down. Okay. I got, I got to put on, you know, five pounds on my bench this month. I got to put on you know, a couple pounds on my, on my, on the scale. That's how it works. You know, you don't need to have a state of the art gym. You don't need to have the latest and greatest machines. You need to have the basics and you need to have, you need to have a desire to conquer and a desire, a desire to have that self mastery that we were talking about earlier on in the podcast. It's uh the most, probably the most important part of bodybuilding is that desire and that desire to, to go through the, the fire it takes to get to the other side. Anyway, with that said, guys, uh, I think we've gone over an hour. I'm not sure, but um, I hope you guys enjoyed it and we'll do some more later. Maybe next time I'll bring on Ben and we'll do a, a tandem Q and a. So until next time, guys, check out hostile.com. We got some new um, clothing coming out this week. I think you guys will enjoy, uh, especially those of you who watch the podcast. And uh, until then, man, train hard, sacrifice without regret, and I always appreciate all of your support. Thank you, guys.